Welcome, everybody, to Secret Sauce, the show where we hear real-time insights from commercial real estate industry leaders. I'm Carly Ayakota. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by a CBRE legend, Spencer Levy, our global client strategist and senior economic advisor. Spencer, welcome to the show. How are you today? I am great, Carly. Great to be here. So happy you could join us. Really, really appreciate the time. So Spencer, we have just endless data that we can cover today, but I want to start kind of broad, 50,000 foot view, if you will, talk about the current economic situation and then drill down into some thoughts on individual property types and sectors for 2024. So what are you seeing today and what does that mean for next year? Sure. Well, Carly, I think you got to look at the economy wearing two hats. One hat you got to wear is just the general state of the U.S. economy. And a second hat you need to wear for, for our audience is the real estate hat. How's the real estate economy doing? And so the overall U.S. economy is doing much better than any of us had expected at the beginning of 23. And that's because of unprecedented government intervention. The consumer having FOMO and YOLO, fear of missing out. You, you only live once. Spending. Uh, labor being stronger than we expected, and several other factors that made us and most other folks on Wall Street and in the economics community really get it wrong in 23. We thought that we'd already have a recession. Interest rates were already coming down. Most of that got pushed out by approximately six months to a year, which brings us to next year. We think things are going to slow down. We do expect a recession in the first or second quarter, which is bad news for the overall economy. But if there's such a thing as a silver lining in that, there is for our industry, because our industry must have interest rates come down in order for transaction volumes to improve. We've already seen some increase in optimism as the 10 year has fallen 80 basis points or so. Uh, we will see increasing optimism, I think much more optimism, once we see the short end of the curve begin to decline, which we expect to happen by the second quarter, continue through 24 through 26. Uh, to the point where the short end of the curve will end up sometime in 26 in the mid twos range. The 10 year will end up somewhere in the threes, mid threes, uh, approximately. Uh, and that will be the new normal. So if I hear you right, first half of the year is going to be slow in terms of velocity, a true recession on the books. And then the, the reaction to that or the policy shifts will be to begin cutting rates second half of next year. Is that a, a correct summary? I can't peg the date the Fed's going to start to drop. <laughs> we want rates. a date. We want a date, Spencer. No. It's going to happen on May 24th. No, it, <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to happen sometime late first, early second quarter, based on our estimates. Could it be a little before? Could it be a little after? I would err towards being a little after. But sure. nevertheless, it's, it's going to come down. Will it be influenced by the fact that there's a presidential election next year? Some people think so, because the Fed does not want to get stuck with the old James Carville phrase, it's the economy, stupid. That was his right. phrase when he was representing Clinton. They don't right. want to be perceived as influencing the presidential election. But, you know, there are those who differ on that. But nevertheless, uh, the Fed, uh, it, I, I sleep well at night knowing that the Fed is largely politically independent. Well, hope that's the case. You mentioned a few terms um, that maybe are not really from not either of our generations here, which are FOMO and, and YOLO. Do you think these almost psychological factors are still going to be at play for the consumer next year? And are we factoring in those surprises from 23 into 24? Or is that 
just a unique thing from this past year. Well, Carly, the next time you invite me to your show, we will have an entire show on what's known as behavioral economics. It is a strain of economics that used to be uh, disfavored, considered to be some kind of nutty way of looking at uh, economic uh, forecasts. Now, the father of uh, that strain, behavioral economics, Richard Thaler, has won a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, because people realize just how important psychology is to spending and the outcome of the economy. So will they continue? Uh, well, all kinds of psychological impacts are going to continue in the next year or so, but they're going to they're going to lessen is probably the best way to put it. So a lot of people ask why this happened this time. And I say, well, I think the COVID crisis was like a meteor hitting the earth. Now, meteor didn't hit the earth, but from an economic perspective, it did. And the only other meteor hitting the earth of this magnitude recently in the greater scheme of things was World War II. And World War II was a similar shock economically. It was obviously a much greater shock from a war, humanitarian perspective, but nevertheless, economically similar shock. And what we saw after World War II is what we're seeing now, which is people who had been deprived of spending for things like cars and luxury items and vacations are now going after them full force. But that waned after a couple of years after World War II. And by the way, after World War II, we had massive inflation for the same reason, which then came down. Uh, I We're seeing the same, a similar phenomenon today. So I do think that some of the optimism embedded within FOMO and YOLO uh, will wane. But I think that the um, COVID crisis was so severe, there are certain segments of our business that will continue to do very well. And that includes hotels and retail, which are two segments which used to be uh, the ones that fell down the first when we had an economic slowdown. Now, I we certainly haven't seen it to date. And I think people are still going to spend more relative to what they had done pre-COVID going forward given that uh, the level of the shock they went through. We love any positive data points on retail. And for everyone listening, I did not tell Spencer to say that. These are his own views. Retail is going to perform well. You heard it here first, folks. So let's take that little bit of, of positive segue and touch on investment volume. Obviously, transaction volume was down significantly, in my opinion, artificially constrained by the capital markets in 23. What are you expecting in 24? We kind of looked at the economic projections. How do you think that will translate to property values and transaction volume? Well, first of all, I'm going to, if I may, just differ just slightly with you here, Carly. Sure. I don't I don't agree with you that they were artificially depressed by okay. interest rates. And this is why. So I've got good news and bad news for everybody on this call who are real estate professionals. None of you are in the real estate business. You're all in the finance and demographics business. Real estate is simply a derivative of that. Everything that happens in finance and demographics matters most. And then we have real estate conclusions as a result. So finance drives our business. Demographics drive our business. So the reason I differ with your term artificial I think that it's actually natural to have changes in deal volume based upon the cost of capital on the one hand and demographics where people move uh, in neighborhoods by cities also based on that. 
So it was it was a natural thing and not an artificial thing. But nevertheless, it was a shocking thing. And I, I'll tell you why it was more shocking than perhaps many of the slowdowns we've seen before. It was because of the speed. And this is not a typo that's about to come out of my mouth. But the 10-year Treasury during the period of September through November rose at the fastest rate since 1787. Not a typo. That wasn't 1987. That was 1787. And I went to many events. I went to many events where people were shell shocked in the audience, you know, psychologically because they saw all they thought all their equity had been wiped out. Now we had seen a similar speed of rise in the short end of the curve uh, through last year. So you have these two simultaneous shocks. You had not only a massive increase in the cost of capital, but a massive shock to the psychology of the average owner and investor. And I think those two things combined conspired to uh, reduce deal volume. So next year, as we see interest rates come down, as we already have in the 10 year, which has dropped by about 80 basis points from its peak, um, and we expect the Fed to start dropping the short end of the curve by mid-year next year, you're going to see not only a lower cost of capital, but as people get used to a gradually declining cost of capital, you're going to see their sentiments gradually improve as well. So yes, we expect to see significantly more deal volume in 24, particularly in the second half than 23. And then 25 could be you know, one of those great years where there's just so much pent up demand, interest rates are lower, that uh, things are going to get a lot better. Uh, Good, I love the positive slants. Thank you for that. Now let's tie that perspective to cap rates and valuations, if you could, because I know you have some wonderful data on this. Are you are you thinking that cap rates have expanded as far as they're going to go? Or do you think we have more room for cap rates to rise and values to fall through the first half of next year or, or maybe even beyond? How do you translate or connect, I guess, the economic indicators you just mentioned to values? Sure. So can I start with a funny little story, Carly? Sure. So here's my funny little story. For about uh, seven, eight years, I was the person at CBRE who was the lead author of the cap rate survey. And, okay. and I'm the person who does not like cap rates as a measure of value. And the reason I don't like cap rates is they try to put too much information into one number. And there's just no way to look at buildings or any types of assets that are in any type of transition. Uh, with uh, anything but a much more disciplined net present value approach, which may translate into a cap rate at the end of the day. But I think it's just too much information and not enough in one number. But now that I've just thrown cap rates Wait, under the bus. Did you, did you share that before you got the job or after? Or was that like five years I, I in? I said it while I had the job. I used to write the <laughs> cover. By the way. Things, denigrating my own survey. <laughs> in any event, now that I've given you the caveat, Yes, go on, go on. That's the caveat. I will say this. I think that cap rates were for everything except for commodity office, which has not seen bottom yet, have have uh, uh, peaked. And the reason for that is the cost of capital has peaked. And the, if the cost of capital has peaked and starting to come down from a finance perspective, people are going to be saying, OK, maybe this is the time to stick my toe back into uh, the water. Now, the other element of cap rates, this is why there's not enough information in one thing, is cap rates are two things. They are both the current yield and expectations for growth wrapped into one number. And so the question is, what are the expectations for uh, fundamental growth in the next few years? And that's where 
this is why I'm not such a big fan of cap rates because I think you are going to see weakness in NOI and other um, income measurements in the next year, including in some of the favored asset classes, including in multifamily, which we've seen flatten uh, in rent growth. We've seen industrial flatten in rent growth. We've seen it in other asset classes as well. And the other thing we've seen is not just flattening of rents. We've seen a massive increase in expenses, particularly as it relates to property and casualty insurance, which is something that you can pass along if you're in office industrial um, and retail. You cannot pass it along in multifamily. All you can do there is just have higher rents down the road. So even though we think that the cost of capital is going to help put downward pressure on cap rates, the NOI deterioration is going to put upward pressure on cap rates. You with me? Of course. No, it's a, and, and, and so it's because a, of that, I think the more likely outcome for 2024 is while I do expect the cost of capital to uh, beat the NOI decrease, you'll see, I think you're going to see a modest decrease in cap rates. But I think I think you're going to see a much more significant decrease in 25 when you see both a materially lower cost of capital and stabilization in NOI. And the reason why I see stabilization in NOI in 25 is because the development pipeline right now is very, very slow. And so by 25, while demand picks up, there's not a lot of new supply that will lead to uh, higher rents. What I can't predict is what's going to happen to some of these costs, most notably property and casualty insurance, which has been causing significant issues in our business. So that's a really good point. And, and I don't hear a lot of people make that distinction between uh, the NOI growth or, or decrease actually, and just straight cap rates. So I'm really happy you brought that up. And you you touched on a few different expenses that I think are important. You just said you weren't sure where insurance was going, which was going to be my follow-up question. What about uh, labor costs, construction costs? Are we any of these other expenses that are filtering into NOI? Do we think there'll be material change in those that will help offset or, or are they going to keep going up and that's going to be part of the degradation? Sure. Well, Let's let's talk first in the development context, and then we'll get right to NOI. So in the development context, you really only have four levers. And, and the four levers you have are interest rates, labor, materials, and land. Those are the four levers of, of cost. And today, what we're seeing in those four levers is interest rates are at highs for 20-plus year highs. We're seeing labor costs continuing to increase, though slowing down, though we have seen commodity costs come down to some degree. But where we're seeing the market crack to some degree is in land costs. Land costs have come down significantly in most places, not all places, but in most places, sometimes by 50% or more, because really, if these three levers don't move much, this is the one lever that can move if you want to develop or to sell uh, your product, which, which brings me then to the NOI. So for NOI, I think we've already said, or I'll say it again, that rents are expected to flatten, maybe go down slightly. But that's not going to be the key driver for NOI. It's going to be some of the other things you mentioned, Carly, because in order to get $1 of rent for most asset classes, office, industrial, and retail, the landlord has to kick in some money for tenant improvement allowances. And kicking in that money requires them to fit out the space or at least pay for some of it. And labor costs are high. Materials costs may have dropped somewhat. So is that going to be a drag on NOI? It is because in certain cases, landlords are just not going to. Uh, it just doesn't pay to bring that tenant in, particularly in the office segment, 
where uh, many of these buildings are um, underwater uh, based upon the, their capital structure. So long, fancy way of saying this. I see labor costs softening. I don't see them dropping. Uh, and the reason I don't see them dropping is because labor costs almost never drop, but also because there are compete, there's, a, there's this tremendous shortage of labor in the country. And a lot of labor, particularly in the construction trades, are, is fungible, meaning it can be done for commercial, it can be done for residential, and it could be done for manufacturing. And what you're seeing now is a boom in single-family residential building, that's some labor, and you're seeing a budding boom in manufacturing because of the CHIPS Act uh, and other incentives to bring manufacturing back. And so the labor is gonna may not be going here to, to, to commercial real estate, but it is going there, and that's going to buffet the cost of labor staying high indefinitely. Though, do I see the rate of increase coming down? I do as the unemployment rate rises, which we expect to happen over the next uh, year or two uh, by 100 basis points or so. So we have costs either remaining steady or increasing slightly. We have income flat or maybe decreasing as rents pull back a little bit in some of our sectors. And we have cap rates steady to hopefully, potentially, declining a little bit second half of the year. When you put all that together, and this is, of course, a very difficult question to answer broadly because it's so asset specific. But how do you think that is going to translate into values? Are we expecting some sectors another 15% decrease in values or have we bottomed out and we think all those factors are going to keep them steady? I mean, do you have any broad-based projections uh, by asset type? Sure. So when I look at value, the first thing I, when people ask me, what, what does something cost? What's it worth? The first thing I ask that person is, well, what's the time horizon of your capital? And if your time horizon is short term, I'll have a different answer than if your time horizon is longer term. Because uh, if there's anything that's ruthless in our business, it is the ruthlessness of IRR. IRR is ruthless because if you miss your target by six months, it can cut your promote down by 25% or more, 50%. It is ruthless. So time really matters, particularly to uh, owner operators who have a promote off of institutional capital. So if you're shorter term in nature, I think values for those types of assets, meaning that already are saddled with those types of saddles, the wrong word, but have those types of uh, capital arrangements, you might see values decrease because people got to get out because because it, it doesn't matter if they hold for two more years, values go up in two years. If your incentive to stay in the deal is already gone, right? So I don't mean to say that people are self-interested, but a lot of people are self-interested. Let's call it what it is, right? Right. But Nevertheless, I think that if you take a look at the buyer pool that we are seeing flooding into the market today, the most prominent buyers today, and this happens in every down, down market, are high net worth individuals and sovereign wealth funds. Why? goes right back to what I said at the beginning. The time horizon of their capital is much longer than it is for your typical owner operator and institutional closed end or open-ended fund. And so because of that, you're seeing a lot of these people buy assets today at values that are 30 to 50% or more off of where they were two to three years ago. And because of that, we have what I will call an intergenerational opportunity to buy some of the best real estate in the best submarkets at values you're not going to see for another, maybe again. And so 
I think values are going to drop a little bit more for the capital structure reasons I just gave you, particularly in commodity office, which we haven't seen bottom yet for. But I think in other asset classes, even office, you can get great deals in great sub markets today. Um, and then are they going to be flat to down in the next year? Maybe. But I think you're going to see material increases in value starting in 25 and 26, including cap rate decreases. I'm horizon of your capital is such an important point that you just made. Um, when does it make sense? What's really a, a good return is so dependent on the capital structure and the exit. So thanks for bringing that up. Really interesting point. You know, I have, this, I have this very uh, wonky side to me. Sometimes when I'm just when I'm bored, I actually break out Excel models and I start just writing them. And I, I just I just want to see mathematically what value changes have um, on NOI, on um, IRR. And then I put a, a little, you know, back of the napkin promote structure on it. And you'll see just how much it affects it. So for all you listeners out there, um, having that little wonky side to you and playing with Excel will teach you a lot about real estate. I love that. Do you invite friends over? Or is this a group thing or this is just you when, you, when you've got downtime with Excel? Well, I'll tell you, I just saw in the Wall Street Journal, uh, I think yesterday, that there's some Excel competition going on somewhere. So I'm not the only one who plays with Excel sometimes <laughs> when he has downtime. All right, good. Glad to hear it. So if you if you win uh, some awards next year, keep us posted. Let you us bet. know. Let's move forward and look at, since we've been kind of touching on pros and cons of different asset types, some thoughts, and you could take this any way you'd like, per asset type for 24. So what are some things you're watching? It doesn't have to be return driven or it could be. What are some interesting sort of thoughts or nuggets per asset type that you're expecting for the next year? Why don't we start with multifamily? Sure. Uh, before I go to multi or any other asset type, let me just make a macro point for a moment. So remember what I said earlier in our conversation that we are not in the real estate business. We are in the finance and the demographics business because that's going to influence everything I'm going to say going forward, because I have some clients that don't buy multifamily retail office, self-storage, any other asset class. You know what they buy? They buy submarkets and they buy everything in that submarket. And so I think that before we go into the benefits of the various asset types, you should be aware that the world of investing has changed. It's actually gotten smaller in the sense that it used to be we had the CBD of the city. We used to have the retail area, we had the multifamily area, but the best submarkets we're seeing in America, and shameless plug, you can read more about this in the Tech 30 report we just came out with, which lists these submarkets, uh, have all these asset types in the same place. So when we say, do I like multifamily? What's going to happen? I say, well, if it's in one of these submarkets, back up the truck. If it's in a different market, you have to underwrite it differently. So that's my, that's my big picture comment. Now I will get to multifamily. And so I love multifamily. I love all forms of housing. And when I say multifamily, I always start with the uh, market rate uh, housing all the and I take it all the way down the continuum to workforce, to capital A affordable, to uh, manufactured housing. And we need to look at it through that continuum, A, because we have a massive shortage of housing. If I could drop 5 million new units on the US, we'd still have a shortage today. But B, there are benefits to diversifying your portfolio away from just the capital, uh, the, the market rate, which is the most volatile in terms of rents and in terms of occupancy. You should know that the average um, market rate unit 
has 50 to 60% turnover per year. But as you move down that continuum to a manufacturer, the turnover might be 5% per year. Uh, the other thing you need to take into consideration is that capital A affordable has inflation adjusted rents. And so there are things that there are benefits up and down the chain. So I've just given you the macro comment. Here's the micro comment. We are seeing softening in the highest asset class or the market rate asset class, which is the asset class that the vast majority of our institutional investors invest in. And we're seeing more concessions from landlords. Um, we are seeing uh, expenses increase. So multifamily is getting to be less attractive in the short term, right? In the short term. goes right back to this time horizon thing. I see this as being a one-year issue because we're not building any multifamily. Half my friends are multifamily developers and they're not building because they can't make the math work right now. A year and a half from now, when there's no new supply and the economy's improving and interest rates are down and concessions go down, existing multifamily stock is going to look a whole lot more attractive. So my basic point is this. If you find the right multifamily in the right sub markets, it's a great time to buy if, if, if this is your only entry point. Right. So if you can say, oh, I'll just wait a year. Spencer just said it's going to be worth less a year from now. I said, well, maybe. But in the if you're going to get the best assets and the best submarkets, you may only have an entry point today. And maybe you have to get in a little early. And I'm going to give you one one ugly little fact. Every time you win an auction, you've overpaid every time. You know why? That's the only way to win an auction. And right. so it's not a negative fact on the winning bidder. It's a it's fact that that winning bidder needs vision in addition to just looking at their cost of capital. That's a great point. You'd never jump in, right? If you were buying everything at a tremendous discount, you likely will never buy anything. So at some point you have to be the high bidder and you have to go for it, keeping the location, all these fundamentals in mind to make a smart exactly. decision. Exactly. Vision, great point. looking at demographics, looking at the forward yield curve, which is the, the uh, finance mm -hmm. side of this, uh, is right. why the people I know that have made the most money over the long term try not the time cycles. They try to buy throughout and just buy the best real estate. Mm -hmm. That's great. Great reminder. Let's move on to what's been the darling for the last few years, industrial. Um, any weakness there? What are you looking at for 24? So industrial has similar dynamics in some ways to what I just said about multifamily. We're seeing a flattening of rents um, and we are seeing a increase in costs. Uh, but many of those property and casualty costs can be passed to the tenant. So it's not the same severity on on the landlord, but we're also seeing that same phenomena in multifamily where we're seeing a massive fall off in new construction. All that being said, we're also seeing a significant fall off in large big box users or occupiers. And so we're probably seeing some more softness in secondary market. When secondary market is the wrong terminology, disfavored market industrial uh, than we are seeing in uh, a disfavored market multifamilies, real softness there. Um, and so, and we expect that to continue for the next year because big corporations can pull back when they expect to pull a, a slowdown faster than somebody can pull back from their housing unit because they got to live somewhere. So uh, we expect 2025 to be a somewhat down year, or 2024 to be somewhat down year in terms of industrial rents. But I think much like multifamily, because there's an undersupply uh, of industrial in the uh, intermediate term, we think it's going to start going much better in 25 and then beyond because of that shortage, uh, because of pent up demand, uh, and because we think 20 by 25, we're going to be past 
um, the interest rate rise cycle. We're going to be in a down cycle of interest rates and uh, the economy will be on the upswing. What I'm hearing from all of this is that 24 is going to really be a year of flux, which will create pockets of opportunity that we may not see 25 and beyond as things just start to, to take off. So uh, I like a little bit of movement and change and ups and downs. It makes the market interesting and definitely creates opportunities. So I think uh, you pointed to a lot of things on both sides for next year. It's definitely going to be interesting. Let me be as clear as I possibly could be. I get asked on these calls all the time. If you had a hundred million bucks, what would you do? And I said, I would find the best real estate in the best sub markets and buy it at 30 to 50% discounts right now, all cash and hold mm -hmm. for a year. And then I'd put the financing money on it in a year, 18 months from now. And then I would have an intergenerational wealth creation event. I got into this business in the 90s. And in the companies that I was working for, we were buying office buildings in Manhattan at 100 bucks a foot. Okay, those those, those office buildings peaked at close to 1,000 bucks a foot. Yeah. Yes, they've fallen off in value since then. But that's the kind of opportunity we're looking at right now. Why were we able to buy buildings in Manhattan at 100 bucks a foot in the 90s? Because the early 1990s were the apocalypse for real estate. The early 1990s were so bad because of the 1987 tax act change, which changed something for all of you accounting wonks out there. Double declining depreciation was eliminated. And we had all these vacant glass boxes on Park Avenue and elsewhere that were selling for a song. We're seeing a similar dynamic now in certain types of real estate where you're going to get those kind of deals and you're going to get the upside like we saw in the swing in values in Manhattan over the last 20 years until recently. Inspiring. You just gotta dig and find those opportunities. I love it. I don't wanna lose track of our individual asset class discussion. So let's touch on, of course, my very favorite asset type, retail. What are you expecting in 24? We've had phenomenal fundamentals, record low vacancy, rent growth, et cetera, leading up to this point. How do you think it will fare next year? Well, Carly, um, I'm not shy about calls I've gotten right, but I'm also not shy on calls I've gotten wrong too. And I've gotten plenty of calls wrong and I can go into a whole list of them. But the one call I'm most proud of, and you can ask anybody who's been in meetings with me in the last five years, is that I said more than once, and I'm saying it on this show, on your show, Carly, that open air non-grocery anchored retail is the most undervalued asset in all of real estate. And why is that? And unanchored real estate, most institutional investors love anchored with a grocery store for the obvious reasons, but unanchored because it has been disfavored by institutions for the last decade plus. And because of that cap rates expanded. But what we've also seen is no new building. And we're seeing fundamentals in terms of the strength of the occupancy, rent growth at levels that we've never seen before in that, in that product type. And so I see that continuing, number one, from a, just a good old-fashioned supply-demand standpoint. Number two, because the institutions are now coming back into the space. And that means cap rates are going to decline simply because of that. Uh, and lastly, I think this YOLO FOMO thing that we've talked about on the show, while it's going to dissipate significantly, is going to be here with us for a very long time. Consumers are not going to hole up in their houses like COVID ever again, if they, if they can help it and retail will uh, be the net beneficiary. 
I couldn't agree more with all of that. I think it would also add that we've seen muted development, just like in other sectors. So there's really a, a demand for space that's pent up and not a lot of supply, which is boosting fundamentals. And I don't see that changing anytime in the near term as well. So nope. great, uh, great perspective and an asset type that we're excited as we see more institutional investors come to the space as well. I think it's uh, gonna continue to perform well. Let's move on to the opposite side of the spectrum uh, and an asset class that I, I don't go too deep on day to day, and that is office. Um, less favored, lots of challenge. I'm sure some tremendous opportunity as well. Whenever you see conflict and movement, there's opportunity. So what are you expecting for office in 24? I'm sure it's an interesting story. Well, Carly, it was nice talking to you. I got something else to do today. <laughs> there's got to be something positive. There's always no, an angle. There, there's a lot positive. And so yeah. let me just start big picture. I've been saying since the beginning of the COVID crisis through the present that the lack of return to office has nothing to do with physical office. It is a labor versus management dispute. And I say that because I went to the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And what was my undergraduate major? Labor. And you know how long labor and management have been in dispute? Hmm, about 4,000 years. Yeah. And so because of that, there are some points in time when labor has more power. There's sometimes when management has more power. We're at a point now where labor has more power. And that is uh, being manifested in part by no return to office or, or less return to office than we expected, more hybrid work and other manifestations, strikes and otherwise that we're seeing in the, in the marketplace. So it's a long, fancy way of saying, number one, we have not reached the new normal yet. A lot of people like McKinsey and others have come out with studies that we've reached the new normal. I do not agree. I think we will not reach that new normal until we see the unemployment rate go up by 100 basis points and more people are going to go back to the office voluntarily rather than being told to go to the office. The other thing we haven't seen yet in the quote new normal is there are some office buildings uh, called 10 percent of the stock that is obsolete. What's going to happen to it? Is it going to be demolished? Is it going to be turned into multifamily? So that's another thing that's going to decrease supply. A third thing that's going to decrease supply is people aren't going to build a whole lot more of it, though I am aware of some people building spec office in the best submarkets even today. Okay. I was in a meeting like that uh, last week when I was in Fort Lauderdale. But the point is this, is that the best office in the best submarkets is performing extremely well today basically across the board in the country. It is that A minus and below and A minus and below submarkets where you are seeing all of the weakness and the weakness is manifesting in lower occupancy, lower rents, more subletting. And that's probably going to continue until we get back to this new normal of the labor market of management and labor being in much more of an equilibrium uh, state. And so because of that today, and I say this point blank, there is no better opportunity than to buy the best office in the best submarket in the market today. And I have clients who have bought assets in some of these best submarkets today at 12 caps with seven or eight year waltz, weighted average lease terms on them. And they are getting them at 50 to 75% off where they were valued three to four years ago. That is a value opportunity that is unmistakable. These are the kind of deals where you can get all of your money out purely by dividends in six years. And people are afraid of it because much like second tier malls got a bad name uh, over the last 20 years, offices now got an equally bad reputation. And that's the opportunity. When something has a reputation that negative, when the actual fundamentals of the space 
aren't that bad, in fact, are quite good in many submarkets, that's where opportunity lies. Such a great point. The story is still unfolding. It's not that office is obsolete. It's that we have this shifting power dynamic, which is still in flux. It's not been decided. It's not work from home. It's not work from office. It's a changing scenario daily. So I, I think you're exactly right to just label it as straight office misses all the nuances of the different property types and submarkets and the shifting dynamic of power. So it really does sound like it's going to be an interesting conversation, not just one of, um, I guess, stagnation. That is, uh, there's a lot more to come is what I'm hearing. Well, a lot more to come, but the, but the single best mathematical opportunity is in buying office in the best submarkets at a song today. And because those office buildings and these live workplace submarkets, many of which are listed in that Tech 30 report I mentioned a moment ago, those aren't going anywhere. And they're going to be great opportunities there uh, for decades to come. Just have an iron stomach when you go to investment committee with that thesis for anyone. Well, it's, it's an iron stomach, but it, it's an investment committee that has visions the wrong term. Because what when you go into investment committees, they are subject to headline risk more than they're willing to admit. Because the headline risk is the investors into the institutional investor are typically not real estate experts. And what they will read is the headline of the paper, office is dead. And then they, the next deal that comes across uh, their desk is office. And, there are, and the investment committee is all afraid about getting a nasty gram from their investors. Did you lose your minds buying office? So that's what happened in retail. That's what's happening now in office. But if you have an investment committee that's able to uh, articulate the real opportunity they see in these asset classes today, um, they're not going to regret it in three to five years. Love it. We could go on and on. Do you have any thoughts on any other asset classes? I mean, we have hotels, we have healthcare. There's so much more we could talk about asset class specific. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we move on? I'm ready to move on. I could talk about every other asset class, but let's keep going. Okay, sounds good. So I know that you are incredibly politically involved. Talk to me a little bit about the, the real estate roundtable that you're part of and what some of the takeaways are and what that means for 24 from a policy or just a um, an overall political sentiment perspective. Sure. And just to put a caveat on that, when I say politically involved, I'm not going to talk about either party. I'm not going to talk about candidates. I'm just going to talk Fair. about policy. I'm very policy political involved. Uh, That's a better way to say it. You're very policy involved. I like that better. I amend my question. That's okay. That will that will keep me out of trouble with our communication. <laughs> but the, the policies that we're looking at are in a couple of different categories. Uh, the number one category, of course, that you're aware of is uh, the survival of the CBD, the Central Business District, and what's going to happen in terms of tax incentives uh, or other incentives to convert many of these uh, obsolete office buildings into multifamily. And so one of the groups that we do a lot of work with is called is named Gensler. Many of you know them. They are perhaps the largest architectural firm in the world. And they and I and they and CBRE agree that only about 10% of the office stock can conceptually could be converted, both for structural reasons and for um, financial reasons. Um, and so issue number one is what do you do with these CBDs? And a lot of people are throwing tax incentives at them or money or direct cash transfers at them. My response, and I say this in public, I'll say it right here on this call, is that next time you see a politician, the first thing you tell that person is, I don't want your money at all. None of it. What I do want is my time. 
And what I want you to do is give me certainty that you can reduce the permitting time of that conversion from the three, four year unlimited process you have today to six months. And that's what they did in Calgary. And that's why Calgary is actually the example that Gensler keeps putting up of this is how it's done right. You know how it's done right? Reduce the permitting time, not generally, but specifically in kind of in a state of emergency kind of way. It has to be that kind of thing for a developer to have the certainty that the developer needs to take the level of risk and cost associated with conversion. So that's that's policy number one. And by the way, that applies that would actually be amazing. More. If you that applies. That I'm sorry, go ahead. And that would be amazing if you could pull that off because that is truly the the pain point. That's the risk in the deal is the time horizon. You know, you look at yours, I don't need your money. I need my time. Right. Yeah, and, that would be phenomenal. And so the the real pain point there isn't so much federal, it's local. Okay. They say that all mm -hmm. politics is local and doggone it <laughs> for real estate, most of it's local. So you really need to speak to your local politicians, the state and local officials about that, perhaps more so than you do the federal ones. Um, second major issue there is the property and casualty insurance issue, right. which um, much like the issue of the CBD is largely a local issue. And the reason why it's largely a local issue is because insurance is not federally regulated. It's regulated at the state level. And so because of that, you have certain states like California, like Florida and coastal areas that are getting just squashed by the insurance companies who are either leaving or massively increasing their rates. And so we're trying to see, is there something we can do to federalize some of those costs to mitigate some of these risks? And, and we have federalized certain types of insurance. We have federalized flood insurance. We have federalized terrorism risk insurance. Is there something else that can be federalized in order to mitigate the risk if you're in a coastal area of your property and casualty insurance going through the roof. Now, just from a practical standpoint, most of my clients are seeing this problem and they're going to places like Lloyd's of London and trying to aggregate their assets, sometimes with the assets of other developers to uh, get a lower risk weighting on their assets. But this is an issue that is going to last for a while. And I think one of the sticking points of this issue is this. It's still a primitive market when it comes to risk weighting. What I mean by that is most insurance companies today, when they look at the risk weighting of your asset, which turns into your premium, they're looking at things like 100-year floodplains, right? right? That Those are, <laughs> that is not the best way to underwrite the risk of your asset because of two things. One, it's the 100-year floodplains. So, you know, things have changed. Laws changed, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but... Also, there are things you can do from a resilience standpoint to your project. So if you take storm shutters, you can get cheap storm shutters. You can get expensive storm shutters. And let's just assume that expensive storm shutters work better. OK, your insurance company is not going to give you one dollar less premium if you put expensive storm shutters on there. They should. But that's right. what the material change has to happen in the insurance business where they have to give you credit for resilience, not just paying a higher premium. So that's that's the fundamental change and, and that's gonna take a while. And I'm actually speaking to several folks on how we uh, we address that issue. Uh, the other issues that- I have a question that, on that before you go move ahead. on. No, go so ahead, I'll take my next question in a second. 
clarification. So do you think that federalizing the insurance then would give you more of a credit for these risk reduction measures? Is that a, a direct connection there? Or you're saying overall, even if it's a, a, a local government uh, or you know a local situation, or we're looking at these 100-year floodplains, whatever it is that we're looking at at a just very granular level, um, that it's that's still going to be the biggest factor? Or are you saying if we federalize it, then that kind of ties through? Or are they well, not going to it? I think there are certain types of of insurance that have to be federalized and they, because there's just no way an insurance company can handle a, a true meteor hitting the earth. Right. I mean, that's right. you know, be the right. end of all insurance companies, but the issue of terrorism risk insurance, which was uh, tragically um, one of the results of nine 11 was um, you simply can't put that risk on a private enterprise completely or would wipe out the, the the enterprise. So I think there are there are segments of the business that should be federalized. Okay, terrorism, okay. flood being them. But I do believe that the insurance companies, the private insurance companies, and or the state regulators need to come up with a fair system of lowering your insurance premiums if you mitigate the risk at your asset. That does not exist today. That to me would be the material shift. And now we could say it'll work in the private market where insurance companies can come up with a better mousetrap. They can do it themselves, but they haven't done it yet because they don't have to because nobody's doing it. But if they're pushed in the right direction, I think that's the solution. That will not be federalized. That will be at the state level. And by the way, I do not think you should federalize all insurance. And the reason is simple. If you live in the safest place in America, wherever that place might be, uh, that has almost no risk of natural disaster. Should you be paying more insurance premiums because somebody else does? That's the kind of risk fact. That's the kind of debate you have in the, in the federal government. You don't want to be in the same pool if everything's federalized. That makes sense. That's right. Thank you for that additional color. Really appreciate it. That was interesting. Uh, I have one more issue if you want me to bring it up. Yeah, no, bring it, bring it. So the other thing that we've been working heavily on at the round table and one of our great success stories here at the round table, because I've been involved with the round table even before I became chairman of the research committee is the flow of foreign capital into the United States. And there's no, there, there are more political issues than that, but there are a few issues that are more politicized than the flow of foreign capital into the United States. And from the perspective of a, real estate, investor, economist, person, whatever it is that I am, it is preposterous to reduce the flow of foreign capital into the United States. Yes, are there limited national security concerns around military installations? I get that, okay? But it's gotta be extraordinarily limited because what you want is as much foreign capital here as possible. Number one, it supports the whole business, creates tens of thousands of jobs for new construction increases values of our assets when you trade them. And, you know, I don't like to dip my toe in diplomatic waters on these kind of calls. It's a diplomatic benefit to have people working together from a financial perspective. So um, one of the things we're working on is trying to push back where we can on restrictions on foreign investment coming into the United States. All very important initiatives, and uh, I wish you the best of luck because any progress on those three points you brought up would be very impactful to everyone in the industry. So 
thank you for your policy efforts and for sharing what you've been working on. I hope that we do see meaningful change because they all would be a very material benefit. One more change. <laughs> I can go for hours, but the last one. Um, as I mentioned when we were talking about multifamily, there's this tremendous shortage of housing in America. But the area where there is the greatest shortage, affordable housing. And affordable both capital A and just workforce housing. And the distinction one is life tech credits, low-income housing tax credits, the other is workforce. So we are also pushing for as many federal tax credits as possible to make it to equalize the cost of building a market rate uh, job versus a um, affordable job where, where your rents are capped. Uh, and the reason why they don't build more capital A affordable is largely, not totally, but largely because the cost of building a capital A affordable job is uh, very similar to cost to building a market rate job. And so obviously the math uh, becomes right. problematic. Right. No, very important. Thank you for bringing that last piece up. I think that said, a huge concern as uh, the lack of affordable housing. So it's good to see that there's some financial or I guess policy things at play that would have financial benefit, which is the only way in my mind that it's going to get cured. So yes, good luck on that one as well. We'll put it into the bucket of fantastic things we're working on that help the industry. Thanks for adding it in. Before we wrap up today, the last sort of of direction I want to take this is any thoughts on what you're expecting from investors in 24. Now, we touched on some things in asset type specific, we touched on capital markets, but anything else at play or trends you're watching from an investor standpoint? Yes. So you have to break the buckets of investors into the various camps because just big picture, at certain stages of a cycle, some investors are more competitive than others. And this is clearly the stage of the cycle where a disproportionate amount of our institutional investors are less competitive than high net worth individuals in certain sovereign wealth funds. Folks that either A, don't have legacy assets that are weighing down their portfolio, uh, but uh, more importantly, don't have redemption queues of people trying to get out of their funds. And so they don't know quite what to do in, in many of these institutions. So, but I think a lot of that's being worked through. It's being worked through in a couple of ways. First of all, the good news is this. Most of our institutional investors uh, underweighted office investment five, six years ago. It was, it, this just uh, didn't happen in the last couple of years. Uh, but there are some that are still saddled with it. And as importantly as our investors, the banks are saddled with it. And we need to find a way for them to lockstep, devalue those assets. So over a reasonable period of time, so it doesn't uh, materially impair their balance sheet and, and improves liquidity. So let's end the academic argument and go right down to what's going to happen with investors. What you're going to see is what we're seeing now, and then you're going to see a change. The ch what you're going to see is High net worth individuals, sovereign wealth funds, and very opportunistic investors are going to be backing up the truck today for the right opportunities. And the problem is sellers that don't have to sell won't sell. So they're not getting nearly as many opportunities falling from the sky uh, as you thought they would, in part because of federal intervention in banks not letting them fail. And by the way, this is better than the alternative. And some of you say, oh, no, it's not better because the alternative was the RTC solution, which was in the early 1990s, where they basically wiped out a significant portion of the SNL industry and liquidated at pennies on the dollar and made people fortunes and it reliquified the market. So there's an argument for that, too. I'm not making that argument. What I am saying is that 
it's good to have the banks not fail, devalue the assets over time. And during that period of time, you are going to see some loan pools come out and large institutional investors are already playing in the loan pools that came out of Signature Bank and will be coming out of other banks. Uh, and so institutions are coming in at an opportunistic level. But you should know that many of these loan pools that have come out have come out with significant seller financing. I don't have the exact terms of the seller financing on a deal, but it was something like 4% financing at over 50% LTV. It was incredible financing terms. And you need that to keep values high and to liquefy the market. So the more we're able to provide seller financing, we're able to buy at fair market value and sellers willing to sell, that's when the institutions will come back into the market uh, with, with uh, dry powder. And there's plenty of dry powder out there right now. Uh, it's just the fact that they're afraid to invest today in part because of the uh, devaluation of their existing portfolios, redemption queues, not enough supply. But once that supply begins to increase um, and you see a stabilization in interest rates, so they know what the risk-free cost of capital is, which is essential, you're going to see institutions jump back into the market in a big way by mid-year next year. I love that. We have a, a clear timeline. We have a lot of positive factors coming together and it sounds like that's going to create some fantastic velocity in the market. Uh, really, really excited to see that. Any other trends, maybe more from the private client space or anything else that you wanted to bring up about investor sentiment in 24? So I'm going to address this to um, some of the rising professionals that are listening. So uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm the executive sponsor of CBRE's Rising Professional Organization. Great group we got here of, of, of rising professionals you know, earlier in their careers. And I give them all the same advice that I'm going to say right now. Like we could talk about the math and the asset classes and the submarkets, which we've done. But I want to say one other thing. This is the time to make your career right now. And it's not just by reading everything which you should. Uh, it's not just by having your little Excel models and playing with it to understand the, the math. It's going out and meeting people right now. People don't know what's happening. Even I don't know what's happening. And I've been in the business for 30 years, though I have a pretty good shot of knowing what's happening. But how do I know what's happening out there? I meet with everybody. I speak to everybody. And not just to get information, but to give information. And so every conversation you have, I had a great boss of mine once who said, Every meeting you go to, bring one unique fact, one unique piece of information to that meeting, and you'll get that second meeting. They don't, they, as my father told me a long time ago, they'll give you the first deal because they like you. They'll only give you the second deal if you're good. And True. now is the time to make those network connections, but make them valuable um, in uh, the ways I'm suggesting. But it's a hard time to be in real estate, it's a scary time. But if you play it right, you'll make your career right now. Now is the time to make your career and we have generational buying opportunities. I can't think of a more positive note in a, a time of market change to end today's show. So Spencer, thank you for all of this time, all of your great insights. We covered so much today. And I know all of our listeners would agree with me in, in truly saying thank you for everything that you shared with us today and for being on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, Carly. Hope you reach out again. To everyone listening, that was Secret Sauce. We are so pleased you could join us and we will see you again very soon. Have a great day, everyone.